Hello everyone, welcome to a new episode of Opera After Dark. Aus meinen Tränen sprießen, viel blühende Blümer hervor. Und meine Seufzerbärchen. I feel like I'm just making this up. I do not remember the text, but aside from the first one. Un wunderschönen Monat Mai. Right. That's all I remember. <laughs> and what you've just listened to are excerpts from a very famous song cycle by a very famous composer. And what was that, Naomi? Well, we have now both sung little bits of Dichterliebe mm -hmm. by Robert Schumann. Ah, uh, yes. One of the shoes. Today, as we mentioned in last week's episode, where we talked about the origin of song cycles. If you haven't listened to that episode, I highly recommend going back. Uh, but now we're going to talk about some of the, the very famous early song cycles and the uh, two of the composers that were, were very famous for composing them soon after the song cycle was created. Composers that we have been lovingly referring to as the Shoes. Yes, Robert Schumann and Franz Schubert. Yes. Both composers overlapped in their lifetimes, so to speak. So Schubert, if I recall correctly, was born in 1797, but I don't remember when he died. He died pretty young. He did die young. I think he was around 30 years old. Right. And then I believe Schumann was 1810, roundabouts was when he was born. And then he lived longer, but still not that long. Like I think maybe he was like 40 or something like that. So Kyle was right on the nose with their birth years. <laughs> yes. Don't even wager Schubert. a guess for the death years. Yep. Schubert was 1797 and Schumann was born in 1810. And Schubert did die very young. He died in 1828. So I guess he was 31 years old. Mm -hmm. Roundabouts. And Schumann died in 1856 so he was 46 years old when he passed wow. so neither neither man really lived to old age i feel like we could do a whole episode just talking about either of these composers and mm -hmm. you know some of the the things that happened in their lives i guess we've we have done an episode on the schumanns we have we've talked about robert and clara and their epic love mm -hmm. um with Johannes Brahms thrown in the middle <laughs> of it all. <laughs> Just an added an added composer for fun. Right. But we haven't really talked much about Schubert, and I actually really, really love Schubert. Mm -hmm. He's probably my more favorite composer out of the two, if we're purely talking about the music, yeah. like the amount of works by Schubert that I really love. If I had to pick one or the other, I'd probably pick Schubert. Although, mm -hmm. once again, I have to admit, I am really bad about confusing the two of them. Not necessarily mm. like I know distinctly the men, I don't confuse them, but their works, I often ah. confuse. So you, I hear something and I say, I know that's Schubert or Schumann, 
but I can't remember which one. It's difficult sometimes. Like you really have to be familiar with the nuances of their style because they they did overlap in time and they were influenced by the same people and they both wrote a lot of piano music. Right, <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah. Piano and There's, vocal music. Mm-hmm. There is there is much to easily confuse between the two of them. Do you have, like if you had a silver bullet of this is how you can discern the two styles of Schubert <clears throat> and Schumann? I know that's a tough question right out the gate. <laughs> but like how, how would you try to dis- distinguish between the two? This is not really a silver bullet per se, but we know that Schumann suffered from some kind of, for lack of a better word, mental disorder. Mm -hmm. And we don't know exactly what it was, but there's a lot of speculation that he um, was either bipolar or manic depressive or schizophrenic, something along those lines where he would kind of swing wildly in moods from one state to another. And he actually did at towards the end of his life end up being institutionalized. And Clara really carried the family. She was the one who like provided for her children. Mm-hmm. So I find a lot of the time with Schumann, his music has this like incredible imaginative quality to it. And sometimes there is like very abrupt shifts from one thing to the next in Schumann's music. And it's very descriptive. Like there's a lot of kind of like musical storytelling in both composers. Mm -hmm. But I find that Schumann has a little bit more like abrupt changes. Okay. This is not really scientific at all and not like... It's not something that I've done extensive research on, but in all the music I've played by Schumann, it to me feels a little bit more episodic than Schubert. Schubert will have like a fully formed narrative or thought. Mm -hmm. And I find that Schumann can move quickly between one thing to the next. I feel like that's helpful. Schumann was an an interesting composer and he actually wrote a lot for um, some of the like musical newspapers and things like that. Mm -hmm. So... He actually had these characters, Eusebius and Florestan, I think their names were, and they they were like made up characters that he would use to kind of represent things about his music. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people have written about like, is this piece representative of Florestan or is it representative of Eusebius? Mm-hmm. And so it's almost like multiple personalities. Maybe that's a good way of putting it, is that yeah. I find his music has multiple personalities that you can find within it. Yeah. Whereas Schubert, I find to be a little bit more cohesive in thought, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. A little bit more straightforward, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Well, today, even though we could speak at length about them generally, today we're focusing primarily on their song cycles, or their, their mm-hmm. more famous song cycles. Yes. So both men were very inspired by what Beethoven did with the song cycle. And... Schubert, in particular, I think, really took the song cycle to an extremely dramatic narrative place. Mm-hmm. So we talked in the last episode about how "On Geliebt by Beethoven is more of a is more circular, mm-hmm. whereas where the drama kind of could you could just loop back to the beginning and the sentiments and the trajectory of the poetry is a kind of never ending loop of emotions and that the protagonist goes through Mm -hmm. whereas in schubert's song cycles there tends to be like a dramatic arc that happens where you are you go on a journey with the character that starts somewhere and ends somewhere and you don't really loop back to the beginning it's like a 
a through composed or not through composed, but like it is a complete narrative arc, Mm -hmm. which is a different way of approaching it than Beethoven. So the song cycle that comes to mind first, which I believe was his first one, was Die Schöne Müllerin. And that was composed in 1823 and published in 1824. And It's written primarily for tenor, although a soprano can sing it. And the poetry is by a man named Wilhelm Müller. And this is actually a very long cycle. So when we talked about Beethoven, there were six episodes or poems that he used in his song cycle. This one, I believe, has 20 movements or poems oh my god 20 songs and it takes about 60 to 70 minutes to perform the whole thing right so we're looking at each song is general like on average three minutes mm-hmm. right some are a little bit longer some are a little bit shorter that's a lot of music and especially if like the performance practice is for one person to stand and sing this whole thing yes and this this one does have um like a variety of ranges that you can really explore as a singer. So there have been some people that like break it up to try and have different singers do it, but it really is designed as like one singer can stand there and sing the whole thing and tell the whole story from the perspective of the protagonist. So it's pretty epic. I mean, to do the whole thing. Right. I think it was, it was in some of his later works. Like I think it's Vintoriza, which is the other, song cycle by schubert that's very very popular mm-hmm. that one i think also has like you could technically have a variety of voices sing it because some of the songs could be sung by a soprano some of them could be sung by a, a tenor and that type of thing but in terms of the narrative arc die schöne Müllerin is from the perspective of a journeyman who well the story which is going to get quite dark quite quickly so <laughs> buckle your seat belts people um It begins in a very idyllic way. He's like wandering through the forest and he's traveling along the countryside. He walks by a a babbling brook. um, And then he, throughout the poems, as the song cycle progresses, he comes across a mill and he sees the miller's daughter, who is the most beautiful woman he's ever seen. And that is the title of the cycle, Die Schöne, the beautiful and then Müllerin, the miller's daughter, mm-hmm. right? So he sees the miller's daughter and she he's just like enamored with her. And she's not really that into him. <laughs> she's like kind of standoffish and... She's going to pass, hard pass. Yeah, he's, he's very effusive with his words. Like one of the songs, I think it's song number seven, is essentially means my heart is yours forever and ever. Coming on too strong, a little bit clingy. <laughs> right, and... <laughs> So she doesn't really return his affection, but then uh, a young hunter comes along clad in green Mm -hmm. and she takes quite a liking to the hunter. And so the journeyman is like incredibly crushed that her her loving gaze has fallen on somebody else. Sad. Right. Even though he knew from the beginning that as a journeyman, he was way below her. Like, there was no hope for them to ever be together because he just couldn't provide a stable life for her. But do we mean journeyman in the sense of like somebody who's like working on a trade or like a man who literally like journeys? Like, he's he's like a wandering laborer or something like that. He's a journeyman 
Miller. Oh, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. He is one. He is a trade. Gotcha. A tradesman. Okay. Yes. And I think you actually hear some of the elements of his trade in the score. Like you can hear at times him like milling stone mm-hmm. or milling things in the score. Or people have written about how what he does for a living influences some of the music. I love that about song cycles generally that oftentimes you get really great examples of text painting mm-hmm. in song cycles where that either the music or the vocal line the accompaniment or the vocal line are illustrating whatever the text is expressing whether it, it is the babbling brook or, or whatever else that you get elements of that in the score mm-hmm. yes i i think that in a way song cycles are like mini operas because they do tell a story mm-hmm. and the or they often tell a story and the accompaniment is so strongly tied to what's going on in the story mm-hmm. they're not just accompanying the singer they're actually like a character within the story or they play the part of different characters or things in the story so there's like this strong tie between the accompaniment and storytelling in a song cycle so how does die schöne Mutterin end okay well the Maiden, and so yes, just to clarify, because maybe I didn't explain this very well. The Journeyman is a miller, that's his trade, and he like wanders around the countryside, you know, getting work where he can. He comes upon a mill at the side of a brook, and he sees a maiden working at the mill, who's the miller's daughter. He falls in love with her, and she does not return the affection. Right. Right? And then there's a hunter who she sees and he's like young and handsome clad in green the color green is like a big thing in the song cycle um (laughs) all that green all that green and so she falls in love with him or she immediately takes a liking to him which crushes the journeyman and then uh the journeyman essentially falls into like the depths of despair at the end in the second to last song he throws himself into the brook and essentially like drowns himself because he's so distraught. Oh, right. And then the last song in the cycle, song number 20, is really interesting because it's actually the brook sings a lullaby to the journeyman, oh, like like rocking him to his death. Oh, that's creepy. And so it's, it's really creepy and it's like sung from the perspective of the brook singing a lullaby, the water lulling him to sleep forever sleep (laughs) right so i want to listen to to some of this song cycle naomi what what should we listen to we should really start i think with song number two which is called vohin question mark and the reason why i think this one is important is because this song introduces this motif of the brook Mm mm-hmm and or the water in in the creek and it's this like rippling pattern and it comes back throughout the cycle nice. so whenever oh, you hear you. it you know it functions like a light motif like whenever you hear it you know it's the water of this brook that makes sense and when you know the whole cycle and what happens then you know that this water is eventually going to be like the source of his death, right? He's going to drown himself in it. And so there's a little bit of foreshadowing that comes into play if you know that going into it, right? Right. So this is Vohin. Vohin, song number two. (laughs) 
Hinab zum Tale rauschen, so frisch und wunderhell. Ich weiß nicht, wie mir wurde, nicht wer den Rat mir gab. Ich musste auch hinunter mit meinem Wanderschwab. Ich musste auch hinunter mit meinem Wanderschwab. Hinunter und immer weiter und immer dem Bachen nach. Und immer frischer rauschte und immer heller der Bach. Und immer frischer rauschte und immer heller der Bach. Ist das denn meine Straße? O Bächlein, sprich wohin? Wohin, sprich wohin? Du hast mit deinem Rauschen mir ganz berauscht in well, it completely changes the dynamic of that selection when you have the, the end result in mind. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad that you pointed that out. That's interesting. And it's also interesting because remember in the last episode, I talked about key signatures having these like deep symbolic meanings. Yeah. So a lot of people have written about the key signatures and their meanings in Die Schöne Müllerin. And so this song number two is written in G major, which there's this musicologist named Rita Steblin who did a ton of work on figuring out all of these like period sources that tell us what composers thought each key signature meant symbolically. Yeah. And according to her, she said that G major was everything rustic, idyllic, and lyrical every calm and satisfied passion, every tender gratitude for true friendship and faithful love, in a word, every gentle and peaceful emotion that the heart can feel is expressed in this key. Wow. And so that's between different composers. Like right. you hear yes, it's kind a of lot like, of composers using that same key to express the same thing. Yes. And there was a lot of like philosophical texts and kind of writings about aesthetics that she looked through in order to piece these things together. Nice. But that's kind of like the consensus of what that key meant. So then, for example, if we listen to song 14, which is the hunter. So this whole song really like embodies the character that essentially steals his love away. Right. Mm -hmm. This is written in C minor, which meant it was usually meant for declarations of love that had at the same time an unhappy element to them. So either languishing, longing, lovesickness, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So you can see how like when the hunter is introduced, like the hunter also is a catalyst for this kind of unhappy element in the story. Right, right. right. So here's a little bit of, of that moment. This is song 14. Und ließ es die Mühlen und Müller in Ruhe. Was 
Augen die Fischlein im grünen Gezweig. Was bildet das Eichhorn im bläulichen Teich? Drum bleibe du trotziger Jäger im Hain und lass mich mit meinen drei Rädern allein. Und bis meinem Schätzchen ich machen beliebt, so witze mein Freund, was ihr Herzchen betrübt. Die Eber, die kommen zu Nacht aus dem Hain und brechen in ihren Kohlgarten ein und treten und wühlen herum in dem Feld. Die Eber, die schieße, du Jäger hält. So at the, toward the end of the cycle, in the second to last song, when the miller actually, or sorry, when the journeyman throws himself into the river, we assume that that's how it ends, where he meets his fate. Um, that is written in G minor, and that key typically referred to or was used in situations of discontent, uneasiness, uh, worry about a failed scheme, uh, resentment and dislike. So it's kind of like, the key of tragedy in many ways, like when everything has fallen apart or when you're, everything you wanted for has failed, mm -hmm. right? And so that is the key of the song that is essentially where the journeyman throws himself into the river to meet his death. And, um, and the final chord is quite striking as he meets his fate, so to speak. And it's supposed to symbolize him like meeting his fate in death. And this is the second to last Yes, this is the second to last song. Und gehen alle 
And the reason it's the second to last song is because the last one, remember, is all about the, or it's the, the brook singing a lullaby to the hunter, rocking him to death, essentially. Oh. <laughs> yes. And weirdly, that phrase, weirdly is, that phrase is so uncomfortable. <laughs> right. Rocking him it's to death. To death. Th- that particular song is written in E major, which... When you look at what E major usually symbolized, it normally symbolized noisy shouts of joy, laughing, pleasure, and pleasure that's not yet complete. Oh, gosh. Um, but so she, Rita Steblin or this source actually says that full delight lies in E major, which is just crazy when you think about like what's happening in that final song it's almost like a jarring juxtaposition right so it's uncomfortable yes yeah, uncomfortable i'm sure a lot of people have spilled a lot of ink over what that means mm-hmm. so <laughs> this is the last the last piece
The last line of text in that piece is uh, heaven above how vast it is. So I suppose you could interpret like the E major joy as like the joy that this journeyman feels like at the sight of heaven, yeah, I guess. The, the joy that awaits him in heaven. Perhaps. perhaps. That's fair. So, but overall, it's a very dramatic song cycle there is a lot going on in it and like a huge kind of up and down of emotions like emotional trajectory is quite quite extreme that you get to travel as the singer performing this yeah and it really is like quite a feat to to sing this because it is 60 to 70 minutes of almost like a one-man drama right definitely but this was this was the first of his really popular cycles uh Vinturiza was another really popular one that he wrote we won't delve too deeply into that he composed it in 1827 uh, published it in 1828 and both Dishinemulleren and Vinturiza were quite successful in terms of like a published score right like right. that you could buy they sold a lot of copies so they were they were pretty popular and occasionally like as now modern day audiences you can occasionally see a concert depending on where you are i mean if you're in new york you, somebody's doing Vinturisa like at some point somewhere that you mm-hmm. can go see the whole thing but um it's definitely something that's worth going to do to see it performed in its entirety just so you get that that full concept of of how the piece was created and and how it was meant to be performed right Another song cycle that's really important from this period is by the other shoe, mm-hmm. by Schumann. Shoe number two. Shoe number two, and that is Dichterliebe, right. which I think is actually more closely aligned with kind of Beethoven's conception of a song cycle because basically all of the poems in the cycle are poems about love. 
And Dichterliebe means a poet's love. Oh. Is what it translates to. That's nice. I don't know. I may have been pronouncing this wrong, but we may as well touch on it because mm-hmm. presumably somebody will comment. Um, I thought it was Dichterliebe. It's quite possible. Oh, okay. That, well, that it is. I don't want to be the person. I'm just, I gen- genuinely or generally assume that I'm the one that got it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> How do you say it? I th- for me, it's 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 the vowel sound. Either the, I think the closed sound is e, so dichterliebe, or the the, I don't I don't know if it's open or closed, but, or i, di, like more of a di, dich dichterliebe versus dichterliebe. Yeah, for some reason, I was, I have always said dichterliebe. Ah. And I had, maybe I, w- I thought I was hearing you say something that was more like dichterliebe. Dichterliebe or Dichterliebe? I think probably part part of my confusion is you in at least in my diction class, um, you that sound was referred to as like an Ischlaut. An Ischlaut. Yeah. Okay. In any case. Well, we'll look into it and maybe have a little corrections corner in the future. Right. <laughs> So this song cycle is all about a poet's love. All of the poetry is by Heinrich Heine. Right. So very famous poet. Mm-hmm. And this one, I had to look into it a bit because I was like, where do these poems come from? And they were actually from a collection of 65 poems. Oh that, my gosh. Yes. That tell this very crazy story when you actually read all 65 of them. Mm-hmm. But the song cycle takes 16 of them. Right. Okay. Like draws 16 out of those 65. So it's a 16 movement song cycle or 16 songs. And the the whole story of these poems in a nutshell is that there is a knight who is quite sad and gloomy during the day. And at night, he's visited by a fairy who is his bride. And he, quote unquote, dances with her until daylight Uh-oh. returns. Okay. <laughs> wink, wink. Nudge, nudge. <laughs> wink, wink. I mean, I'm just reading the wink, wink into it. But There's a wink, I wink. Mean, Come on. And right. this is opera after dark, after all. <laughs> yes. So, and then at the end of this cycle... He has all of these songs about like these dreams and things he experiences with this dream fairy woman. And he's suffering because he's basically in love with like a figment of his imagination, (laughs) I guess, or like a fantasy figure or a supernatural being. And so he wants to like bundle up all of his suffering that he feels in this fantasy love, uh, put it into a giant coffin and throw it into the ocean. Nice. So that's. The, the arc of the story in the whole 65 poems. But Dichterliebe kind of excerpts 16 of, I guess, the most like romantic and touching of the of the poems and groups them together into a song cycle. Yeah, it's really lovely. Do you have a favorite? It's beautiful. Do you have a favorite selection from Dichterliebe? So I have, a, I have a couple. I really love the first one, Im wunderschönen Monat Mai. Yes. The which is essentially like in beautiful May, 
I wander through I wander through the forest in the spring, the birds are singing, the flowers are blooming, and love fills my heart. Yeah, it's right? lovely. This is mm-hmm. where I admit that the first two selections were songs that I sang on a recital when I was in school. Mm-hmm. And they're really nice. As a singer, it's nice too because it's so... Um, the music is composed in a way that is pretty free-flowing. It just it feels very natural in the voice. These were mm. these were songs that I really enjoyed singing because it felt very comfortable, um, which in theory is how it should feel, even when you're singing a very dramatic aria or whatnot. But as a young singer, this is a really good type of song to to really feel comfortable in your technique. Mm-hmm. That particular song really illustrates in Wunderschönen Monat Mai is this like beautiful chromaticism that runs through the whole cycle. It's really inventive and kind of like cutting edge harmonies for the time. And if you listen to those harmonies in another context, you might think that it was Wagner. Like if you set those harmonies to different rhythms with different instruments, with some throw in some brass you might think it's <laughs> a lot you might of brass. Think it's wagner right but it's it's just this beautiful like subtle chromaticism that really runs through the whole cycle that he does super interesting things with the harmony that i think doesn't doesn't get mentioned enough that for music theorists like studying dichterliebe is learning an incredible like ingenious approach to harmony from this time period Definitely. But the other song that both Kyle and I like quite a bit from this cycle <laughs> is called Ich Grolle nicht. Isn't it like a, like I begrudge not? Right. So this is song number seven. I'm not holding a grudge. Yeah. And I've seen this performed many different ways because it's short, number one. Yeah. The text is pretty easy to like wrap your tongue around when you're first learning German as a young singer. So a lot of conservatory students sing this song. And I feel like I've heard it sung like like almost sarcastically, like, I'm not going to complain. No, no, no. You just like broke my heart and left it in like a thousand pieces (laughs) and then stomped on it and trampled on it. Right. So you can sing it that way. Did you see my performance of it, Naomi? Wow. (laughs) You really got it. You understood. Yes. Yes. So I've seen I've seen it that way, but then I've seen it like like almost like a like woe is me. Yeah, kind of. You know? Like kind of pathetically interpret like interpreted intentionally to be like a pathetic reaction 
to being jilted in love, right? Um, I think the last line is like, I saw my love, how empty you are. Yeah. Which is pretty intense. I so. I feel like there's some um, kind of sarcastic um, meaning that's almost built into the music. Or once again, it could have just been my interpretation, but how the music builds through the different phrases, mm-hmm. like you, you get, you know, it starts um, – in a, a more calm place and then ends in a place that like vocally it's much higher um, and feels mm-hmm. a little bit more intense. We could probably listen to this whole one, I think. Oh yeah. Just to give a sense of it. So you as a listener should listen in and, and see what your inference is for what the meaning is here. I'll read you the, the whole text. Yeah. I do not chide you though my heart breaks love ever lost to me. Though you shine in a field of diamonds, no ray falls into your heart's darkness. I have long known it. I saw the night in your heart. I saw the serpent that devours it. I saw, my love, how empty you are. See, that sounds like somebody who's holding a grudge. It's like, <laughs> you, <laughs> yeah, no you're not going to rain on my parade. I knew you were a snake. I knew you were worthless, so I don't care. You suck. That, like, right. That's what I'm hearing when I hear that. And it's there in the music. We should listen. So Naomi, I'd love to get your opinion on how with with these song cycles, especially because they have become popular for younger singers or, or singers that are still developing, I feel like they've also been transposed into different keys. Like you, you have an original key of, you know, the original key that, that um, Dichter Liebe was composed in. But then you'll find mm-hmm. like a high voice version or a low voice version because like singers mm-hmm. in, with different vocal ranges want to be able to sing them. Is that something that like, would you ever see somebody perform 
a transposed version, like a, like a professional performer transposed version, or or do you really only see people stick to the, like like the original Fox that these were composed for? I think most commonly you see people stick to the original voice type that it was composed for. Fair enough. But I do think that there are always interesting outliers that try something new. Mm-hmm. And like I have a recording, um, I can't remember the name of the singer, but it's a, a, a recording of all of Disher Liba's song by a female soprano, oh, which okay. it was not originally written for, right. but I think it can be very compelling. And so my kind of, I'm not really a stickler for historical accuracy in all things because I feel like every every person in every generation like pieces mean something different to to people over time and I feel like like there are some things that are just like you can acknowledge are blatantly historically inaccurate but move you right Right. or that were dramatically very compelling Mm -hmm. even though they were not exactly what the composer quote unquote intended or planned for when they wrote it and so i feel like i've seen song cycles like vinterreise like dichterliebe performed in ways that were not at all what the composer initially was you know thinking about even though we can't know for sure what they were thinking about but just in a way that they might have never imagined yeah but were really interesting and and compelling performances and so i'm kind of a like anything goes if you commit to it so (laughs) yeah i know what you mean just like perform it as you want to perform it as long as you add a lot to it and you make your own interpretation that's great i always feel like if you as a performer believe in it if you believe in your interpretation what you're doing that will come through to the audience and at that point the point of your performance is not historical accuracy the point is to like convey or to share your perspective and create a moving experience for the audience. Yeah, I like And you that. can only do that if you do it authentically to who you are and what you, how you perceive or interpret the piece. So Yeah, I really like that. Part of the reason I asked, I, I liked singing these selections from Dishteliba, um, partly because they, they do, it's like a high baritone more mm. so, really, than a tenor. And... Okay. And I was a, a, a tenor, so it, it felt very comfortable in that it, it wasn't, like, even the higher notes didn't feel extremely high. Um, right. But it's interesting because you do see it, it transposed for different voices. And it, and it it does sound different. I mean, I mean, this applies in, in many different ways, but it, it sounds very different if you have a baritone sing Dish de Liba than if you have a tenor mm-hmm. sing Dish de Liba. It's just a different tonal quality to it. And just in the same thing, if you have a female sing it, it it le- lends a totally different timbre mm-hmm. of sound. And so you're going to be able to hear it in a different way yeah. than you would with a male singing. So we have a lot of great info and listening so far in Song Cycles by the Shoes. Um, there was mm-hmm. one more that we were going to talk about just because there's an interesting tidbit about it. And Ooh. that is... Another song cycle by Schubert called Schwanigazong, mm-hmm. which is a lot of fun to say. <laughs> um, what's most notable about Schwanigazong is that it was a song cycle that 
rather than taking poetry from just one poet mm-hmm. um, like the others that we've talked about that that uh, it, it's all the same poet um, throughout Schwanagazong actually has three different poets that have um, poems that have been set in this cycle uh, which is kind of interesting just because that's not the typical what was typically done right I think the other interesting tidbit about this cycle is that It was actually not published during Schubert's lifetime. He died before he could see it published. Mm -hmm. And so it was published posthumously. Yes. So we we think that this was his complete idea for the cycle, but who can say? Right, that's true. (laughs) Just in case... Who can say with certainty? In case you're wondering who the three poets are, um, of Mm -hmm. course we have Heinrich Heine, who I feel like Heinrich Heine is one of those poets that like he must have been so prolific because at least in the music world, his poems are used everywhere. It feels like they are. There's mm-hmm. so much of his poetry that's out there. Um, so of course he's included there. Also Ludwig Rellstab and Johann Gabriel Seidel, Seidel, Seidel. Uh, all of them contributed poems. And I think it was two of them that had, um, the, the large chunk. So Relstab had one through seven, uh, and then Heinrich Heine had eight through 13, and then Seidel just had the last one, um, Die Taubenpost. Isn't uh, Taubenpost, some people believe it's the last song that Schubert ever wrote? I would believe that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely, which is kind of odd because I think it, it translates to the, the pigeon post. <laughs> it's a great career and comes down to the pigeon post this song cycle does include one of my favorite schubert songs oh yes which one is that der doppelganger yes der doppelganger isn't that one a pretty Mm -hmm. long one it is it is but it's just so it's so creepy and dramatic and like the poem is all about a singer who looks at a house where he once lived with his beloved Mm -hmm. or sorry he looks at a house where his love once lived and he's horrified to see someone standing outside in torment and then the longer he looks the more he realizes that the person in torment that he sees is actually himself Ooh, yeah it's like this creepy like ghosty thing so it's really it's really effective yeah Und 
dir graust es, wenn ich sein Antlitz ziehe, der Mond zeigt mir meine Well, I personally have a favorite from Schwanengesang, and it is, mm-hmm. I can't hide it, it's because I, I sang this song, and it's <laughs> Der Atlas, Ooh. which is all about Atlas, the, I guess Atlas is a titan, right? Titan? He's not a god, right? In mythology? Well, isn't, like, Atlas the one who, like, carries the world on his shoulders? Exactly. He's the one that's been okay. charged with carrying the world on his shoulders, and mm-hmm. so it's like there's all of this wrapped up into the score that's like this very like somber. I hear it as being like a little bit angry, but you hear the weight that Atlas is carrying Ooh. in the score. It's a lot of fun to sing as a singer. Nice. And it, it was one that was a little bit lower for me, which I enjoyed because you just really got ah. to dig into it. Let's listen. This is a little bit of Der Atlas. Oh, 
That's a little bit about some of the most famous song cycles by the two shoes. The two shoes. Schubert. Schumann and Schubert. Yes. Or Schubert und Schumann. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so, so, Rob and Franz. <laughs> those two? Those guys? <laughs> yes. And as I mentioned in our last episode, the song cycle generally was a really influential structure on other types of compositional processes and so you actually see piano cycles becoming quite popular at this time as well and so it's very similar to a song cycle just like a series of pieces that are all tied together with some kind of common theme or point of inspiration Mm -hmm. and Schumann wrote several piano collections that are analogous in several ways to a song cycle. They're not exactly the same, but they have, you know, similar roots. And one of them is Kinderzinen, which is Scenes from Childhood, which is just a really charming song cycle and or piano song cycle, I should say, and really shows you his kind of like imaginative spirit. And the titles are very evocative of then what you hear in the piano parts. And that's something that has long-reaching kind of effects, like even Debussy wrote piano collections that are kind of in a similar vein. His Children's Corner is quite popular as well. So the idea of linking a multi-movement work together around either a narrative arc or storytelling in some way becomes very popular in the Romantic era and just evolves from here. And so as we go on... When we revisit song cycles, we'll talk about how it balloons beyond piano and voice and moves into kind of orchestral settings. And then we'll also get into kind of what's happening with song cycles today because people are still writing them today. And it's pretty interesting. Yes, they are. And a fun thing with song cycles, too, is that there's a lot of exploring that you can do in different places and what they do in in different languages or different cultures with song cycles. Mm -hmm. There's a a very distinct style that you have in German song cycles versus Spanish song cycles versus French song cycles. So there's definitely a lot there. Yeah, there's also along those lines, there's quite a resurgence of English song cycles, which we'll touch on, which is interesting because we don't really have a whole lot we don't have a whole lot of English opera. There's like a dearth of English opera throughout the, basically all of the 1800s. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's like no English opera so they being were doing written. so much song and cycles. So there's, there's other things. Well, yeah. So there's, they were, there are some songs that were written, but with the rebirth of like English opera, you also have a kind of a resurgence of English song yeah. becoming quite popular too. So we'll probably touch on that in the future. At some point. Yeah, sounds great. A lot of song cycles this year, but it is, in fact, opera after dark. Yes. And so next week, we'll be back with you talking about something probably a little more opera related. Mm -hmm. But yeah, this is a fun topic. Certainly for former singers, we love talking about song cycles. So hopefully you've enjoyed this episode and, and enjoy the song cycle as well. And I definitely suggest if you have a favorite opera singer... 
look it up and see what song cycles they've done because a lot of opera singers record song repertoire as well. Yeah. So, or have done it in concert. So there's lots of great, amazing singers who are singing this repertoire out there. Definitely. And while you're looking that up, you can also look us up. You can find Mm -hmm. us at operaafterdark.com. There you can find our full episode archive. You can also find our merch shop with lots of fun t-shirts and mugs and other things that you can get with Opera After Dark on them. Help support the podcast. Mm -hmm. And another way to support the podcast is going to patreon.com slash operaafterdark. Uh, If you're a longtime listener or maybe you've only listened a couple of times, but you like what we're doing here and you, and you want to help support it, we would really appreciate it if you could go to Patreon. So uh, so please consider that. Of course, we're on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and definitely you can always find us wherever you're listening to this podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We'll look forward to seeing you next week. And until then, I'm Kyle. I'm Naomi. Thanks again. Thanks for listening. Bye.